right, well, it is uh, full-on Christmas mode now. We're officially in December, so uh, no complaints, right? Like, we're just prepared for it. It's Christmas time, and I am a, I've always been like a Christmas person. I enjoy Christmas. Uh, growing up, I was looking forward to all the different things that we did. We were a family that uh, we did like a lot. Mom would like bake like crazy and do like candy making like crazy, and I can remember sitting at the kitchen counter like doing cards, I swear, like hundreds of cards, like she would get out the address book and send everybody Christmas cards, and I've always loved that, um, and so I've always been a Christmas person, I've really enjoyed Christmas, but I, I gotta be honest, like over the past couple of years, it's still, I still like it, but it's, it's like I've missed it, because I, I just get so busy and so stressed out at Christmas time, and Christmas comes and Christmas goes, and it's like, oh yeah, I guess we missed another one, and, and so I just kind of decided this year, I'm like, I don't want to do that this year. Like, I want to actually enjoy it, and, and I want to actually, like, like, savor kind of every moment, especially as our kids are getting a little older. I want them to be able to have some memories that we have, and so trying to make the most of it this year, you know? Uh, and so we've been doing some things to try to make those kind of memories. Last night, um, yesterday, uh, my family went with a group of people, and we went to uh, Journey to Bethlehem um, down in Walnut Creek. It was really cool, this whole process that you go through. We had a good time doing that. We've been doing some baking and stuff uh, over the course of the past week. And one of the things that we're doing, we have this, this family kind of Advent activity. It's not really a calendar. It's like a kit. It's a box. I don't know. Uh, where you have some things that you do. Once you complete it, you hang it on the tree like they're little ornaments. And so we had one this past week that was, hey, just talk about some of your, your favorite Christmas memories. And so we did that. And, um, and I, I shared from, uh, it was supposed to be from your childhood. So like Christy and I had to reach way back into the recesses of our minds to tell our kids about, hey, way a long time ago in the 1990s, okay, <laughs> Here's what my childhood looked like. Um, and I can remember for me, one of the things that popped in my head, I always loved decorating. And mom would, uh, we, like she would allow us kids to decorate our own rooms and like the basement rec room. Like that was our space. We could decorate it however I wanted. And I thought that was so cool. And now as an adult, I just realized she let us decorate the spaces that none of the company was ever going to see. Like she did the living room and stuff that everyone was going to see. And we always got like the old, like the really old like Christmas decorations that otherwise would just got thrown out. And she's like, here, decorate with these. And the one I remember every year hanging it above my doorway was this like 1980s plastic candy-shaped garland. Anybody know what I'm talking about? It's like little candy canes, a little, like little hard candies. And I mean, I would put that up every year. I love that. I don't, I, she probably threw it away at this point, you know, which is sad to me. Yeah. I did ask. I did actually ask for, uh, for this sermon series, which you'll see in a minute, if, if she had this old angel tree topper that held like two Christmas lights like they were candles. And she said, no, I got rid of that. I'm like, dang it. But anyway, uh, that was one of my memories, and Christy, she shared this memory of uh, a, a really significant gift that one of uh, a teacher got in, like, middle school for her and her sister. Um, and we asked our kids, and, and of course their kids, and Paisley's like, cookies! I'm like, okay. Braxton's like, the, the, the D-Day Army men set I got, like, two years ago. I'm like, okay, right? But we have these memories, and they're good, and they seem wonderful. And it's just holly and jolly, and it's wonderful, and it's everyone's being of good cheer. Um, but I would be lying uh, if I said that Christmas always felt that way. Or that those were the only feelings. Because while Christmas can be great, it can also be, like, strangely, one of the most painful times of year as well. And sometimes you have both those at the same time. It's great and it's painful. Or sometimes you're like, it's just painful. Or it's just hard. You know, maybe like me over the past couple years, how I shared, it's just been so busy and stressful. Maybe that's your reality this Christmas or maybe other Christmases. It's just like, man, I would like to enjoy Christmas. But every year it comes and it goes. I'm just stressed and annoyed the whole time. 
uh, or, or maybe, you know, we see this time of year, it's like everything is picture perfect and everybody's just happy and smiling and it's just hallmark, right? Like, like that's not the real world. It doesn't, people don't live happily ever after. I've got a bone to pick with Hallmark because my wife just Hallmark movies all the time. And it's like, well, that's not the real world. I look around and I see other people, like, that's not my life. You know, it's like, it's like people's families look so perfect. We're like, hey, we're going to have a family Christmas card, and we're going to get pictures, and everyone's going to have matching pajamas. And you're like, okay, I'm glad you have the picture-perfect family, but I don't. And so, like, there's just this, this reality and this pain of realizing my family's not ever going to look like that. Or, or maybe this is the first holiday spending without a loved one, and so there's a, there's a hole, there's an emptiness. Maybe, maybe it's been several years that you've lost someone, and Christmas has never been the same since then. Maybe uh, the, you've experienced a breakup, and it's like, I'm, I'm going to be alone at Christmas. What, what is up with that? Or, or maybe, you know, like, say our students sitting in the front row, and it's like you've got drama going on maybe between a friend group, and like it's just weird, and no one's talking to each other because that happens. It's like, what? Christmas, is, it's not supposed to feel like that. And when life gets challenging or life feels weird, it can feel like the timing of Christmas is off. It's like, this doesn't feel like Christmas time. This, this doesn't, this doesn't I'm, not, I'm not happy. I'm not joyful. This doesn't feel right because Christmas is supposed to feel a certain way, we think. And then we come to church and we talk about Jesus. We talk about what we're going to celebrate. We're going to be excited because the Savior has come and it's joyful and, and, and be of good cheer. And you mar- God rest you married, gentlemen. What if the gentleman didn't want to be married? Okay, it's like, it's like so I, I feel this pressure to be happy with Christmas. And like, I'm not. And, and so what, what, what does that mean for me? I can, it, we, can, we can talk about this, this reality that God sent Jesus at Christmas and it was great, but it doesn't seem like that is doesn't seem like it applies to me. I'm glad he showed up then, but I begin to wonder if he's going to show up for me now. I'm, I'm glad God loved people enough to send Jesus, but does he still love me? Does he still care about me? Because my life would, would seem to indicate otherwise. And, and listen, if, if you're wondering that, whether that right, right now or in the past, it's been like Christmas with that kind of feeling, let me just say a couple of things. Number one, you're not alone. Um, I, I guarantee you there are probably several of you in the room this morning, and there were several in the first service where it's like, this is something that many people carry. And not only are you not alone in it today, but that is actually, that is the, 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 the mood or the atmosphere or the environment in which what we would say like the first Christmas took place in. Like when, when Jesus shows up, he shows up in a world of just kind of, of discouragement, of doubt, of despair, and so you are right at home, really, in the Christmas story. And so we're going to look at that idea. We're going to look at that idea today. As we start this Christmas series over the course of the next couple of weeks, we're going to look at some different things that happened around the birth of Jesus. And all of these things are going to have uh, really one unifying thing, one thing in common, and that is that they all have to do with angels. Angels are everywhere at Christmas time. We almost, you don't even realize how, how, like how many angels are everywhere. Like just on your way home today, turn on some Christmas music and count how many songs mention angels. It's a lot. Go through your house if you've got decorations up and see if you can count how many angels that you have. It's just everywhere. And so we think about angels and we sing about angels, but it's like, what are they actually? Because before we get into the series talking about, hey, these messages that the angels had, I think we should know what angels are. So I've got like a minute and a half long video to roll to explain angels Cue the video, guys. Now let's talk about angels. I'm way more familiar with them, human-like figures with feathery wings. No, wait, stop. Angels in the Bible don't have wings. What? No wings? No angel wings. In fact, angels are often mistaken for people because they look like us, just a bit more impressive. 
But the cherubim have wings. Yeah, and the angels are different because they have a different purpose. Okay, which is? Well, humans can't just march into God's realm, so God will reach out to us, and he often does so through these spiritual ambassadors. So angels are like spiritual messengers. Yeah, in fact, that's what the word angel means, a messenger. Right, this happens a lot in the Bible, like the angel who tells Mary she's pregnant with Jesus. Yeah, and then the other main role of angels is to perform missions on God's behalf. Sometimes they rescue people from danger, like when Peter is released from prison. And there's some really cool angels, like Michael and Gabriel. Yeah, the name Gabriel means God is my power, and Michael means who is like God. But also notice, these names point to God, not to the angels. Like humans, the angels are images of God's presence and power. But still, how cool would it be to meet an angel? Yeah, and maybe you will, and maybe you already have. But no one in the Bible is ever encouraged to go looking for angels. And when angels do show up, people are usually puzzled or freaked out. So angels are really awesome, but they play a supporting role in the Bible. Yes, because God's ultimate purpose is to bring humans back into his presence in a reunited heaven and earth. And in the meantime, he uses angels to guide and to serve his people. All right, so homework assignment. If you have any angel decorations at your house, you need to go home and rip all the wings off of them, okay? <laughs> Just a little Christmas carnage, okay? No, don't do that. You can keep the angel wings. But angels are simply messengers. They're spiritual messengers that God is up to something in the world. And sometimes he, he brings these messages through these messengers. And over and over in the days, the months uh, surrounding the birth of Jesus, we see angels appearing with really important messages. And so we're going to look at the first one uh, here this morning, and we are going to see angels, an, one angel who is bringing a message into a, a place of, of doubt and despair. We're going to be in Luke's gospel today. Uh, Luke is one of the accounts of the life of Jesus. We're going to be Luke chapter 1. If you've got a hard copy Bible you want to turn there, you can do that. We've got some at the back of the room if you'd like to grab one. We're also going to be up on the screen with the verses. Uh, Luke chapter 1, we're going to pick things up in verse 5. Uh, here is what we read. In the days of King Herod of Judea, there was a priest of Abijah's division named Zechariah. His wife was from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And, and so Luke begins to introduce or kind of set up what this account is going to be about. And one of the things that, that I want to point out is, is how many like names and specifics are listed here just in one verse. Okay, so Luke wants you to know exactly who he's talking about. He's like, okay, this is during the days of King Herod. The King Herod, uh, who is the king of Judea. Oh, am I, oh man, my, my pen's not working today. All right. Trusty finger it is. King Herod of Judea. Uh, and there was a priest of Abijah's division. His name was Zechariah. He's married to someone named Elizabeth. She's from the daughters of Aaron. And so Luke has this habit in his gospel of over and over giving details. Uh, if you read Luke, I want you to read Luke's gospel sometime and look at just the names, the dates, the places, the events that he records. Luke is actually an incredible recorder of history. He starts his gospel a few verses before this by saying, I have thoroughly investigated all of these things and written down a, an orderly account so that you may know with certainty the things that you have been taught. See, Luke wants us to know and to realize that the Christmas story, that the gospel, that Jesus, it's not, it's not myth. It's not fable. It's not fairy tale. He wants you to know that something has actually happened in reality. 
that God showed up in time and space and did something. And so when we move into this idea and this celebration of, of the birth of Jesus and the hope that he brings, there's this powerful idea that, that the hope of Jesus is not a hope that's theory. It's not, it's not the message of Jesus, the good news of Jesus isn't just something that I hold in my heart or an idea that I hold in my head, but that something has happened in reality. The good news and the hope of Jesus shows up in our lived experience, that he intersects with our lives in a very, very real way. And Luke's like, here's exactly when this happened and who was involved. And so he introduces us to uh, two people, Zechariah and Elizabeth, and that's who this is going to center around, specifically this conversation between uh, the angel Gabriel and Zechariah, and his wife Elizabeth is mentioned throughout that. So you have that set up, and and Luke tells us in verse 6 that both of them, talking about Zechariah and Elizabeth, both were righteous in God's sight. They were living without blame according to all the commands and the requirements of the Lord. Luke's like, you you need to know that they're righteous, um, that they're... And it started working for a second, I promise. That they're righteous, that they're living without blame according to all the commands and the requirements of the Lord. Looks like, hey, like th- these two, Zechariah and Elizabeth, they're good, upstanding people. Okay, they're, they're, they're first century Jewish people and they're following the laws and the customs of the Old Testament. They're doing what they're supposed to do. They're, they're celebrating the celebrations and having the feasts and offering the sacrifices and they're, they're, they're doing everything that a good Jewish person should do. I mean, Zechariah is even a priest and he's serving in the temple. They love God. They follow the law. They follow the customs. They do what they're supposed to do. And the fact that they're, they're righteous, it's, that's not just a statement of uh, their behavior or their actions. But righteousness throughout Scripture is always tied to people's trust in God. That when people believe in God, when they trust in him, they're counted as righteous. And so here you have a couple who trust God. Like he's good, he is loving, he is faithful, he keeps his promises, we trust him, we're trying to follow him, we're doing our best to like just do what we're supposed to do. And Luke points this out for a specific reason. Like there are no just throwaway lines in scripture. We may not always understand like, okay, what does this mean? Why is this here? But the authors have a reason to include the things that they include. And Luke wants to paint a picture of who Zechariah and Elizabeth are before he gets into what happens. Because this idea of their kind of righteousness and their posture before God sets up the rest of the account. It makes it leap off the page and have more significance. So because on one hand, he's saying they're righteous. It seems like they've got everything together. It seems like they're doing all of the right things. But the next verse starts with but. But they had no children. And so, hey, really, really good. Things are great. Things are wonderful. And then he's like, but no kids kids. And for us, we're like, okay, that's interesting, I guess. Maybe they didn't want to have kids. No, 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 not in that, not in that culture. Like children were a, a, like a, your legacy. Children were everything in that culture. Children were a sign that God has blessed you. The more children you had, the more blessed that you were. And they didn't have any children because Elizabeth could not conceive. And both of them were well along in years. So not only do they, do they not have children, not only not have children, but they're well along in years. That's, that's just Luke nicely saying they're old. Okay, they're old. They're, they're at a point at that time in that place where like, not only have you not had children, but it's no longer a possibility for you. It's not, a, oh, it hasn't happened yet. It's like, no, the door is closed. That season of your life, that chapter is done. There is no hope. This is, sorry, that, that wasn't going to happen for you. At that time, there, there was some thinking, not among everyone, but among many, that if you were not able to have children, then maybe you did something wrong. 
uh, you know, maybe you have some sin in your life and God is ticked at you, so he's punishing you and you, you can't have children. And so there's that stigma that's attached to this. And even if everybody didn't hold that, that particular uh, belief or that, that position, it was still to, to not have children was a socially disastrous position to be in. Because you have just the awkwardness of like, oh, here you have this couple who, you know, everybody else has kids and they don't. And it's just, what, what's going to happen with them? What does their future look like? You know, that, that weird, hushed, like social awkwardness that happens whenever someone comes into a room and you know they're kind of dealing with something. You're like, oh, i got to walk on eggshells. We have kids, so don't, don't mention anything that our kids are doing or the fun that they're having because it might really upset these other people. And so there's this, this social awkwardness with them not having children. But then there was a very real lived, like, economic experience that this was this would result in. You see, as, as parents aged in that culture, it was the, the responsibility and the job of children to care for their aging parents, to be able to provide for them. There were, there were no social safety nets like we have today. There was not, you know, retirement and 401ks. And it was like, no, you, you are reliant upon your family, your direct family to care for you. It's actually a I mean, a really beautiful picture of this kind of cyclical nature. Like a parent, parents raise kids when kids are helpless and they can't provide for themselves and they give of themselves and give of themselves and raise the child and then the roles flip and the parents get old and so they can no longer care for themselves so their children care for them. And here are Zechariah and Elizabeth getting older and older and older and they have no one to care for them. They have no one to provide for them. They have no one to leave that legacy to. They were in a difficult situation. They were in a difficult situation. And so Luke, on one hand, is saying, hey, you know, here you have this contrasting idea of, like, they're righteous, and yet life isn't going well for them. It's not going well at all. It's not going well at all. And at the same time, they're still trusting in God. They're still trusting in his faithfulness. He's trustworthy. They're living in that very, very real tension that we often find ourselves in. That struggle back and forth between, like, I'm trying to follow, follow God, I'm trying to believe, and I, I'm going to church, I'm, I'm reading my Bible, and I feel like I know him, and I love him, and yet life isn't good. How do I balance those two things out? And so Luke is setting that up for us. The other thing that he's also doing in the way that he's bringing things out in the text is he's priming his readers to be expecting God to do something. Because if we're familiar with the scriptures, which, again, this isn't something that happens overnight. Don't be like, well, I didn't know that. This is something that we learn over a lifetime. Luke is priming his, his readers, especially those who are familiar with the Jewish story, to be expectant for God to do something. Because when they read about an older couple that is childless, there would be bells going off in the minds of people who were familiar with the Old Testament. They instantly would have thought of someone like Abraham and Sarah, and that they were old and couldn't have children. They would have thought of, uh, of Isaac and Rebekah and Jacob and Rachel, who experienced a time where they were childless, where they were barren. In, in all of those situations, the, like the child of the promise came through them, and God was working through that family lineage, and every time when it seemed like there was no hope, something happens and they're able to have a child. But it was always at the end when it seemed like it was hopeless because there's this idea that says, take, you know, no human can take credit for what this, what's about to happen. That when something happens, it's going to be completely just clear and obvious to everyone that this was something that God has done. And so Luke has now set us up to go, here's the situation of this couple, and something's going to happen that only God could be responsible for. Zechariah and Elizabeth can have no children, and they're old. Verse 8, we read that when he, we're talking about uh, Zechariah now, when his division was on duty and he was serving as priest before God. So he's a priest in the temple. Uh, not all, uh, all of the priests lived and served in Jerusalem. There are thousands of priests, and they, they live scattered throughout the nation of, of Israel, uh, the, the nation of, 
of Israel at that time. Uh, and so they would serve and teach in their local communities. And then you would get called up. And it's like, okay, your division's on duty. You're going to go to the city of Jerusalem. You're going to stay there for a little while and do the, the duties in the temple. And so Zechariah's division is up. And while his vision is up, his division is up, it happened that he was chosen by lot according to the custom of the priesthood to enter the sanctuary of the Lord and burn incense. Uh, so they would, they would pick who was going to do this by, it says, drawing lots. For us, like drawing straws or maybe in our context, putting all the priest names into a random name generator, generator hitting the button. It's like, okay, Zechariah, you're up. It's, it's, your, it's your turn. Now, this would have been a, an incredible uh, just honor for him. This is literally a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. There's so many priests that not everybody could do it, so your name was picked, and it was like, wow, this is a, a, great, a great honor. And if you had done it once, you couldn't do it again because, again, there's so many priests that you only get one shot at this. Uh, and so it's a huge personal honor, but at the same time, this isn't anything out of the ordinary. He's going to go and burn incense. This is something that happened every single day in the temple, day after day after day after day. So it's just kind of the normal operations of the temple. Nobody's batting an eye thinking, I mean, Zachariah's like, well, this is cool. I get to do this. But everyone's like, oh, yeah, someone was going to do it today. I guess it's your turn. I guess it's your turn. And it's in that kind of normal operation of the temple, in, in this guy's who, who, life who seems like he's having a hard time, that something incredible happens. At the hour of incense, the whole assembly of the people was praying outside, and an angel of the Lord appeared to him, appeared to Zechariah, standing to the right of the altar of incense. And when Zechariah saw him, he was terrified and overcome with fear. Uh, that is a lot of times the, the reaction when people see angels. They're like, oh, they're so cute. And they're like, no, they're like, ah, which is usually why the first thing that comes out of the angel's mouth is, do not be afraid. Okay, that's, that's not even the main message. That's like, hey, you're about to calm down because I need to tell you something, but like, calm down, okay? Don't be afraid. Uh, it's going to be okay. And so he's, he's terrified. The angel says, hey, don't be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son and you'll name him John. Your prayer has been heard. That, that, that's, that's encouraging. That's comforting. Hey, I'm praying to God and God actually hears me. That, that's great. That's, that's some good news. But at the same time, I would imagine Zechariah is wondering, like, okay, if I, my, my prayer has been heard, I've been praying for a long time. Why is it just now being answered? I'm going to have a son. You're going to name him John. He'll end up being John the Baptist, who's going to play a key like, role in, in the uh, announcing of God doing something in the world, the announcement of the, the Messiah. And the angel begins to, to talk to him about that a little bit. He says that this son of yours, there will be joy and delight for you. Like for you and Elizabeth personally, this is, this is exciting. This is what you've been waiting for. But not just for you. Many will rejoice at his birth. He will be great in the sight of the Lord. He'll never drink wine or beer. He'll be filled with the Holy Spirit while he is still in his mother's womb. Now, again, those seem like some odd details to us. But Luke is, is tying back into some Old Testament themes. This idea of, of, of kids that would be uh, dedicated to the Lord's service to take maybe like a, what's called a Nazarite vow. They weren't allowed to drink anything fermented. Um, they'd be filled with the Spirit and they'd be dedicated. Like, hey, this child is going to do great things. They're going to serve the Lord. And so when readers who are familiar with the Old Testament would read that, they'd instantly be thinking of names like Samson, who the same thing happened for. Or, or the prophet Samuel, who again, the same thing happened, was dedicated to the Lord. And so it's setting up this expectation that this child is going to do something incredible. That God is going to use this child uh, in, in a really significant way. And the angel begins to talk about what that looks like. That he will turn, the child will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. He'll go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to their children. 
and the disobedient to the understanding of the righteous to make ready to the Lord, for the Lord, a people prepared. That this is, is this child, this John who is going to be born, this was his primary calling. That he was going to make ready for the Lord a prepared people. That he would be the one who would go before, uh, he would grow up to be this kind of wild man living out in the desert, out in the wilderness, eating like bugs and honey, wearing camel hair, and he'd be preaching this message of like repent, which means just change your mind, change your thinking. God is about to do something. And he preaches this message over and over and over, and then Jesus shows up and he's like, there he is. There's the one we've been waiting for. This is what John is going to do. This is what John is going to become. And this sounds like such good news. Put yourself in Zachariah's shoes right now. Or sandals, I suppose. Whatever they wore, okay? And, and he's there, and he's burning incense, and out of nowhere he sees this angel, and this angel's like, your prayer has been heard. That's awesome. You're going to have a son. That's awesome. And not only are you going to have a son, this son is going to do great things. I mean, this is like every parent's dream, right? Like we want our children to grow up and to, to, and to do something incredible. We want them to, to just to, to step into what God has for them and, and to be a part of what God is doing. And it's like, yes, this is, that you're going to make an impact on the world. This seems like every bit of good news that Zechariah could be imagining. Everything is coming true in this moment. But that's not his response. That's not his, his initial response is not like, yes, let's throw a party, let's celebrate, let's have a good time. His first response is, how can I know this? How can I know this? For I'm an old man, and my wife is well along in years. I like, by the way, that he calls himself old, but he's like, my wife is well along in years. I'm not going to call her old. She's <laughs> just a smart man. How can I know? It's almost like he said, well, that, that sounds good, but that sounds too good to be true. That's just, maybe, maybe angel, like you said that you've heard my prayers. I would imagine that John has probably been praying for a long time, probably decades at this point. Be like, hey, couldn't you have told me this like five years ago? Ten years ago, before it was too late, but now it's just, it's just too late too late. But the angel answered him and said, I'm Gabriel who stands in the presence of God and I was sent to speak to you and tell you this good news. He's like, hey, this is, this is good news. I mean, sometimes, listen, and I think this is where Zechariah is. Sometimes we can get so used to bad news in our lives. We can get so used to life just hitting us over and over and over and over again and being like, you know, I'm, I'm so disappointed. I'm so disillusioned. Like life is just not going well that when good news actually smacks us in the face, we don't even recognize it as good news. Because we're just so used to like every other thing being like, well, that was bad, that was bad, that was bad. And when something good happens, you're like, can't possibly, can't possibly be good news. And so he has this doubt. He asks, how can I know this? And Gabriel's like, you shouldn't ask that. <laughs> he doesn't say that. He's like, now listen, you will become silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place. Because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their proper time. Now, there, there's a, again, there's another pattern that is established in the Old Testament for what's just happened here. When there, these uh, angelic announcements happen, usually we see like an angel shows up, there's an announcement. The initial response by the person receiving the uh, message is fear. It's followed by the angel saying, don't be afraid. And then the angel gives his message. And then the person receiving the message doubts or asks for a sign. And then the sign is given. And so we see that exactly happen with Zechariah here. He's like, how can this possibly be? I, I, I'm old. And like, I need a sign. Like, how can this be? He's like, here's your sign. Quiet for nine months until the baby comes. And notice, though, what, what Gabriel says. And I think this is so important. This will be fulfilled 
in the proper time. Like, this is going to happen, but it's not necessarily going. It clearly already hasn't happened on your timetable, Zechariah. And it's not going to happen on your timetable. But it is going to happen at the proper time. Meanwhile, the people were waiting for Zechariah, amazed that he stayed in there for so long. When he did come out, he could not speak to them. They realized that he had seen a vision in the sanctuary. He was making signs to them, and he remained speechless. But when the days of his ministry were completed, he went back home. So his, his division's up. He's heading back to his house. And after these days, his wife, Elizabeth, conceived. She kept herself in seclusion for five months, and she said, The Lord has done this for me. He has looked with favor in, the, in these days to take away my disgrace among the people. The Lord has done this. The angel Gabriel shows up to Zechariah with an incredible promise. You're going to have a son. This is good news for you. It's going to be rejoicing for many people. Not, not just any son. He's going to play like a major role. Like Jesus even says of John the Baptist later in life that no one who's ever been born of woman up to that point was as great as John the Baptist. Like literally, Jesus says, you're the best person to ever have lived to this point. Like you're going to have a son, uh, Zechariah, and he's going to be incredible. He's going to do incredible things. He's going to announce the coming of the Messiah and the Savior of the world. But after so many years of disappointment, he had a hard time believing it. Zechariah's doubt, his struggle to believe uh, what God had, had, was saying, listen, it was not because he was rebellious. It was not because he didn't love God. It was not because he distrusted God. It was not because he did anything wrong. Like sometimes we're quick to think, oh, like shame on you, Zechariah. You did something bad and that's why you didn't believe in God. No, like Luke goes out of his way at the beginning to tell us, hey, Zechariah and Elizabeth, they love God. They're righteous. They're blameless. They trust him. He's doing everything right. But the reason that he didn't believe, that he didn't believe the promise, is because when you spent so long being disappointed, it's hard to see life through a, a hope-filled lens. Right, when, it, when it's just like bad news after bad news and I'm in a dark place and it's disappointment and it's doubt and it's despair and it's just like, what is going on? It is just hard. We, we get really, really jaded. We get really, really cynical. And it's just like, no, nothing good can possibly happen. And that's the place that Zachariah found himself in. Where it's just like, listen, I'm too old. Elizabeth's too old. You're too late. Again, maybe 10 years ago, I would have been excited, but it, it's too late for me. It's too late for us. But it wasn't too late for God. Like he was, God was right on time. He was right on time. He arrived exactly, God is never late. He shows up and works exactly when he means to. And for Zechariah and Elizabeth, that was true. And for the whole world at that moment, that was true. It was the perfect timing for Zechariah and Elizabeth. They had to wait a long time and it didn't go according to their plan. But because it went according to God's plan at his time, not only did they have a child, but that child was John the Baptist. They would have missed out on that if life had gone according to their plan and their time. And their story is a bigger snapshot of what is about to happen through the birth of Jesus. That the whole world was waiting. The, all, the, the Jewish people, the, the nation was like, maybe God has forgotten about us. They had, they had endured generations of oppression and silence from God. They were living at this time under Roman occupation, and they're beginning to wonder, those promises that God made to our people, is he ever going to show up? Is he ever going to be here? And yes, Jesus came at just the right time, at just the right time. God was right on time. And in their despair, in their disappointment, in their doubts, 
he was on time. And, and here's what, I mean, I, my, my prayer for you, for me, would be at this Christmas, if that's the place that we find ourselves in, it's like it's not feeling Christmassy and things don't feel wonderful and things aren't great, that we would believe and trust that he shows up at the right time for us that we believe and trust that there is room for us in the Christmas story, just like there was room for Zechariah and Elizabeth, that there is room in the Christmas story, even if it seems like my life doesn't look very Christmassy at the moment, if it's not full of joy and cheer. The, the, the birth of Jesus is still incredible news. That when we're struggling to understand or trust what God is up to, that we'll remember of how he's working and moving and how what we see in this, this account, and we'll remember that God's timing is always right. It's always right. His t- it's not our timing. And we may not like it. We may not understand it, but his timing is right. And in the midst of that, when, when, when we're, we're living in God's timing and we're waiting for him to show up and do something, that's what this season is. You heard Paul talk about it earlier with the lighting of the Advent candle. It's a season of waiting, of expectation, right? The, the, the nation was waiting for their Messiah to show up, waiting for Jesus, and we celebrate that. We, always, we also look forward with expectation. We're waiting for him to show up again to show up on a broad scale and, and redeem the whole world and, 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 and eradicate sin and evil. We're, we're waiting for that. But on a personal level, we're waiting for him to show up in our lives and, and to change things and to change circumstances and to change us. And sometimes we're in that, that situation. God answers every prayer. Sometimes it's yes, sometimes it's no, sometimes it's not now. We find ourselves in those moments of waiting. But in the waiting, we don't just kind of sit back and go, okay, I guess there's nothing that I can do that we can be proactive in the waiting. We see Zechariah doing things that we can also do, that we can pray while we wait. What does Gabriel say? Hey, your prayers have been heard. While we wait, we can pray. Pray, pray about the thing that we're waiting for. Pray about what else is going on, God. Like, and, and be honest with it. Don't pray these safe little, okay, God, it's wonderful, and it's trust. I'm trusting you, and it's all in your time. Like, I mean, if that's what you really think, then pray that. But a lot of times, it's like, God, what are you doing? I've been praying for months or for years. I'm waiting, I'm waiting, and I'm beginning to wonder if I can trust you. Like, go to him with those things. He can take it, and it's okay. Pray honest prayers to say, I'm waiting for this. But even in the waiting, even when it's hard, I'm still going to trust you. We pray in the waiting. The second thing we do is we remember while we wait. Right? We, we saw that Zechariah and Elizabeth were called righteous in God's eyes. They kept the commands. They kept the laws. All the laws and the commands and the, festival, the festivals and the celebrations of the Israelites were meant to replay God's faithfulness to them. They were meant to be these reminders over and over of how God had showed up in their, in their past. And so they were constantly living those things out, remembering that. Every time that Zechariah would have been in the temple, he would have been surrounded with reminders of God's past faithfulness. And so we remember while we wait what God has done, how he has come through for you in the past. How has God come through for you in the past? You know, maybe you need to start writing those things down because sometimes it's really easy to forget. And we begin to remember, hey, you know, he came through for me six months ago. He came through for me 10 years ago. And so he was faithful in the past. He'll be faithful today. He'll be faithful tomorrow. Remember how he's been faithful and come through for us. We remember how he's come through for the people around us. We go to the scriptures and we see how that is what God has done for all of time, that he has showed up and he's kept his promises. Last thing we can do is serve while we wait. We serve while we wait. After years of waiting, Zechariah got his answer while he was serving. He showed up. He kept doing what he was called to do over and over and over again. He kept going to the temple, kept doing what he was supposed to do. And we are invited into doing the same kind of thing, that while I'm waiting, while life isn't going how I I want it to go, I'm going to show up and I'm going to do what God has put me on this planet to do. I'm going to serve. I'm going to serve people at work. I'm going to serve in the role that I have in my family. I'm going to serve in my community. I'm going to serve in my church. Whatever that looks like, this idea where it says, 
I'm going to get my focus off of me and my circumstances for a moment so I can focus on what someone else needs. Because so often it's in those moments where we focus on someone else that we get incredible clarity from God. And it's like I hear him in a way that I didn't before. That's when Zechariah hears what God had said. We pray while we wait, we remember while we wait, we serve while we wait, and we trust that God is good, that he is faithful, that he comes through. I want to close things out this morning just um, with a quote. This is from Tom Wright's commentary on the Gospel of Luke. This is him speaking about this encounter with Zechariah and Gabriel. And he says that this story is preparing us for an even more remarkable conception and birth of Jesus himself. But this story reminds us of something important. That God regularly works through ordinary people doing what they normally do. God just shows up and works through ordinary people doing what they normally do. And I love this. Who, with a mixture of half faith and devotion, are holding themselves ready for whatever God has in mind. Like God shows up and works, and that's not when we're like, I mean, he does in these places too where we're like, yeah, I'm on fire and I know everything. But man, he shows up sometimes when it's just half faith and devotion and it's God, I'm trying, but it's not working. And he shows up and he works in those situations. We're ready for whatever God has in mind. The story is about much more than Zechariah's joy at having a son at last or Elizabeth's exaltation and being freed from the scorn of the mothers in the village. It's about the great fulfillment of God's promises and purposes. But the needs, the hopes, the fears of ordinary people are not forgotten in this larger story precisely because of who Israel's God is. He's the God of lavish, self-giving love as Luke will tell us in so many ways throughout his gospel. And when this God acts on the large scale, he takes care of smaller human concerns as well. Within the Christmas story, within this announcement, the angel showing up with this announcement, we see both of those pictures, that God is about to do something for the whole world through Jesus, this large-scale promise that he has made. But in the large and the big picture, he knows your personal concerns in life as well. And he's good, and he can be trusted even while we wait. Let me pray for you. Lord, I thank you for this season of Advent. As we look with expectation and we remember the birth of Jesus, God, when you became human, that, that in our brokenness and in our despair, in our disappointment, in our doubts, in all of the pain that we experience in our sin, you did not leave us alone to suffer. But you stepped into time and history. You became human. You lived this perfect life. You died for our sins. You rose from the dead so that we could know that you can be trusted. That through Jesus, all of these promises are fulfilled. And so, Lord, as we, uh, as we enter this season, I pray that we would just be reminded of your faithfulness. God, for those who are here, who are in a, a Christmas season of, of disappointment, of doubt, of despair, God, I pray that you would remind them that you can be trusted. That what they're in is not the end of their story, that you have more ahead for them. Lord, there's always better days ahead if our faith is in Jesus. Lord, I pray through your spirit that you would empower those that need your strength this holiday season. That you would remind us all of your goodness.